Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, and welcome everyone to our latest criminal case. Today's case is sure to send chills down your spine. If you have an unusual fascination for the darkest, most unbalanced, and the creepiest criminal mindsets, then you're sure to love this story. On September 12, 1994, at 9am, at the Indian Meridian Primary School in the suburbs of Oklahoma City, in Choctaw in the United States, the school's principal, James David, was in his office when suddenly a man who appeared to be a vagabond, dressed in a crumpled suit, looking very grim, burst into the room. Jim Davis, surprised, then said to him, What can I do for you, sir? The hysterical man replied, They've taken my son from me. You've taken my son from me and I'm not leaving without him. Who took your son, sir? Are they the parents of one of our students? Yes, my son is called Michael Anthony Hughes, and I'm not leaving the school without him. Michael Anthony Hughes? Yes, you're quite right. He's one of our pupils. But I know his parents, Merle and Ernest Bean. Unfortunately, I can't allow you to leave with the child. I should probably tell you that I've got a gun in my pocket. You know what? Maybe if I show it to you, you'll change your mind. The man drew his pistol and continued. I'm ready to die today, and so will you if you don't help me. Now, without any sudden moves, take me to Michael's classroom. Reluctantly, the principal complied. He took young Michael out of his classroom and followed the armed man to the school parking lot with the little boy. The homeless man then forced the boy and the school's principal to get into his van and ordered the principal to drive for quite a while until they reached a wooded area. It was at this moment he threatened the principal with his weapon and asked James to get out of the vehicle. He gagged him, tied him up to a tree, and disappeared into the woods with the boy. James struggled in vain to undo his bound hands. It was only after four hours that a hiker found him, removed his gag, gave him something to drink, and immediately went looking for help. When James described the morning's events to the police, he knew that the kidnappers had a four-hour head start on them and had most likely left the state of Oklahoma. So they contacted the FBI and a special agent named Joseph Fitzpatrick took over the case. He began by reporting the theft of the van and launching an investigation to find the kidnapper and rescue the hostage. However, now the police had the unpleasant duty of having to inform the adoptive parents about their little boy's abduction. The news completely destroyed Merle and Ernest Bean, especially since they weren't even permitted to reach out to the kidnapper through the media and beg him not to hurt their beloved sensitive son. Due to confidentiality clauses set out in their adoptive agreement, Michael, six, had in fact been living in the Bean home for four years. 
The couple immediately welcomed him into their foster family. After the death of his mother, Tony Don Hughes, in a tragic car accident two years earlier, his father, a man named Franklin Floyd, gave him over to social service. After not having heard from him for some time, they placed the boy with the Bean family. Six months after Michael had been placed into a foster home, Franklin Floyd was arrested for violating his parole and for kidnapping and sexual assault case that dated back to the 1973. When the Beans brought the little boy home, he was traumatized and prone to anxiety attacks. He was uncommunicative and also had problems with his motor skills. The Beans showered him with affection to give him all the love and security that he needed so that he could recover and thrive, fearing that he would one day have to go back to his biological parents, who were likely the cause of all his problems. The Beans decided to adopt him and give him the last name of his deceased mother, Hughes. As a part of the adoption process, Michael's DNA was compared to Franklin Floyd's to confirm his paternity. The results of the DNA test established that Franklin Floyd was not Michael's biological father. Despite the results, as soon as he was released from prison, Franklin tried desperately to regain custody of Michael, but never won the case due to his criminal record and mostly because he was not biologically related to the little boy. After the request for Michael's custody was denied, he began to get increasingly obsessed, leading to the desperate plan of kidnapping the little boy on September 12, 1994. He set in motion an extensive manhunt that went on to become one of the most thrilling federal investigations in decades. The investigation would also provide the opportunity to expose the shady past and the secret turmoil that Franklin Floyd was hiding for many years. As was customary, the investigators went back to the source and went over Franklin's past with a fine-tooth comb, beginning with his childhood. The following is what they learned. Franklin Delano Floyd was born on June 17, 1943, to a poor, rural, marginalized family in Barnesville, Georgia. He was the youngest of Thomas and Della Floyd's five children. His violent and alcoholic father died shortly after the first anniversary after suffering from liver failure and hepatitis due to his addictions. His destitute mother, who struggled to support herself and five children, decided to abandon them. In 1946, Franklin and his brothers and sisters were sent to the Georgia Baptist Children's Home in Hapwell. It was a home where every form of cruelty and abuse took place, unfortunately like anywhere else in the world. In the orphanage, the young, effeminate Franklin was constantly bullied. He was beaten, brutalized, and sexually assaulted many times by older residents as well as by the adults who were supposed to take care of the children. At the age of six, he was sodomized with a broom handle by another of the orphanage's residents. Franklin continued to suffer the mistreatment and torture from the staff until he was a teenager. That was when his hand was forcibly immersed into boiling water after he was caught masturbating. This violence made the boy more brutal and aggressive. He started fighting and getting into trouble more often for small infractions until one day in the year 1959, at 16 years of age, he broke into a house to steal food, which forced the Georgia Baptist Children's Home to release him and place him under the care of his older sister, Dorothy. His sister asked him to leave after a short time. Left to fend for himself and without any money, he boarded a bus and headed for Indianapolis to look for his mother. After wandering around for two weeks, young Franklin eventually found her. Unfortunately, she did not provide him with the love and comfort that he was looking for. On the contrary, their reconciliation further reinforced his trauma. His mother, Della, was living very precariously. She was a drug addict who took up prostitution for a fix. Disgusted by the situation, Franklin tried to find a way out of it. 
so he asked his mother to falsify his birth certificate and give him identification, which would allow him to pass for an adult. He wanted to go to California and enroll with the army. This camp was successful and he was inducted into the army, but his happiness was short-lived. Within six months of joining, he was discharged after the military authorities discovered that he was a minor and that his documents was falsified. As a result, he returned to Indianapolis, but this time he was unable to trace his mother. He then began a long and dangerous life as a nomad, traveling aimlessly from state to state without any destination. After living as a vagabond for barely a few months, on February 19, 1960, Franklin broke into an American retail chain store, Sears in Inglewood, California, to steal a gun. However, a burglary alarm was activated and the police immediately arrived at the location, which led to an exchange of gunfire between the police and Franklin on the roof of the store. During the gun battle, he was shot in the stomach but survived after receiving emergency surgery. After recovery, he was sent to a youth detention facility for a year. At 17 years, Franklin committed the first of a long series of offenses that would appear on his criminal record. Soon after his release, he was immediately sent back behind bars in 1962 for parole violation. He was arrested at the Canadian-US border with another parolee. In June 1962, he had been out of prison for a month and through an ex-convict reintegration program, he found a job in a warehouse at Atlanta International Airport, but his aggressive impulses caught up with him. He abducted a little four-year-old girl from a bowling alley at a shopping center, drove her into the woods, sexually assaulted her, and let her go. A police investigation quickly led to him and ended his arrest and conviction for 20-year sentence for kidnapping and raping a minor under the age of 15. He was consequently incarcerated at Reedsville Prison in Atlanta, Georgia. However, he would spend only four months in prison before he was transferred in November 1962 to Mildredgeville State Hospital for a psychiatric examination ordered by the judges. He escaped from the hospital on March 14, 1963. On the next day, the excitement continued as he had his eyes on a branch of Citizens and Southern National Bank in Macon, Georgia, and stole more than $6,000. After a two-hour chase, the police arrested him. His trial occurred later that same year in July. There was no denying his guilt in the bank robbery, but he explained that he stole the money to gain attention to his unfair pedophilia conviction and to clear his name. He was therefore sentenced to 15 years in prison and was sent to Chillicothe Federal Penitentiary in Ohio but it seemed like Franklin was beyond redemption. On September 27, 1963, after barely having been in prison for two months and with the help of two other convicts, he hotwired a prison fire truck and broke down the fence. This escaped attempt was a failure and added another five years to his prison sentence. During his incarceration, he was transferred to various prisons from Lewisburg in Pennsylvania to Marion in Illinois. In fact, in every new prison, he claimed that he was constantly being raped by other prisoners and he tried to commit suicide after every attack, sometimes by slashing his wrists or by threatening to jump off the roof. This situation went on for several years until his release from Reedsville Prison in Atlanta, Georgia in 1968, where he had become friends with his cellmate, David Dial. Franklin had already been behind bars for 10 years, but despite the kidnapping and rape of the little four-year-old girl, his armed robbery of the bank and his two escape attempts against every expectation and good sense was placed in a transition home in 1972, in anticipation of his upcoming release. In January 1973, Franklin was once again placed on parole. 
but as was customary for him, he found it difficult to adjust to life outside the prison. One week later on January 27, 1973, he went back to his criminal ways. He approached a young woman in a service station in Atlanta and forced her to get into his car, sexually harassed her, and then tried to rape her. Fortunately, the woman defended herself and was able to escape. A few days later, he was apprehended by the local police. As a result of a strange set of circumstances, he successfully convinced his friend, David Dahl, from the prison in Redsville to pay his $3,000 fine. However, his appearance before the court for attempted kidnapping and sexual assault on the woman from the service station was set for June 11, 1973. In light of Franklin's criminal past, it might be just to suspect that he might not show up for his court appearance. That's precisely what happened on June 11, 1973, and a warrant for his arrest was issued. He then lived his life as an hunted fugitive, taking on different identities and using different names until 1990 when he made a mistake that would lead to his arrest. In fact, after the death of his wife and the mother of little Michael, Tanya Don Hughes, he gave his real identity with his actual social insurance number to the insurance company with which his wife had taken out a life insurance policy of $80,000. Since he was on the federal warrant list, the insurance company issued an alert that led to his arrest. But the statute of limitations had expired for the kidnapping and assault charges, so he was only sentenced to a 33 months in prison for violating his parole, and the icing on the cake was that he still collected the $80,000 from Tanya's life insurance policy. As one might expect, Franklin wasn't about to get his life on the right track. So unsurprisingly, on July 4, 1994, which was just four months after his release, he broke into the apartment of Kerry Back, a resident in Northwest Apartment Complex in Oklahoma City, where he had a job as a maintenance worker. The woman who had gone out returned unsuspectedly and surprised him in her bedroom while he was sniffing her undergarments. When she saw him, she was terrified and started screaming. Fortunately, her boyfriend arrived a few minutes later and managed to subdue Franklin before calling the police. Franklin was once again arrested and once again he got away with it, because a month later in August 1994, he was released on bail. At this point, it's not hard to guess what happened next. A month after his release on parole, Franklin was once again wanted by the FBI for the kidnapping of young Michael from his school. However, what most concerned the investigators in this case was that Franklin was obsessed with the boy, even though he knew that he wasn't the boy's biological father. The FBI was concerned for the safety of the boy, knowing the kidnapper's aggressive, criminal, and unpredictable past. After hours and days passed, the FBI feared that this case would not end well. That was all that came out of the preliminary investigation on Franklin's role in Michael's kidnapping. The police, however, still had no information of the 17 years of his background from 1973 to 1990, the period during which he probably escaped with impunity and made the necessary contacts to hide Michael. To get to the bottom of the mystery of his 17 years as a fugitive, they decided to turn their investigation in the direction of Tanya Don Hughes, Michael's deceased mother, in hopes that they would find the answer to their questions and more importantly, a clue would lead them to the kidnapped boy. The FBI agents began their investigation by focusing on the end of Tanya's short life. They went back over the circumstances of her death. On the evening of April 5, 1990, three passerbys found her unconscious in a pool of blood on the edge of a very busy highway in Oklahoma City. Surrounded by what seemed to be groceries, including diapers for the baby, milk, bread, cookies, and soda, and she was whispering the words, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. 
she was transported to the emergency ward at the Oklahoma Presbyterian Hospital with serious contusions and a large hematoma at the base of her skull. The police suspected she was a victim of a hit-and-run case who had struck her while she was walking with her groceries back to Motel 6, where she lived. The doctors who worked on her, however, had a completely different opinion. They did remind that her injuries did not match those of the car accident victim. The next day, Franklin arrived at the hospital and claimed that he had fallen asleep in his room at Motel 6 after Tanya left to do her shopping. Later in the day, he went to his workplace, picked up his paycheck, and told his co-workers that he was moving with little Michael and had said nothing about Tanya, who was hanging in between life and death situation at the hospital. Despite her many injuries, Tanya's condition began to improve and Franklin even visited her one evening in the hospital. Just after he left, the young girl's heart stopped beating. Since he was her husband at the time of her death, he informed the hospital of her last wish which was to have her organs donated and her body cremated. They then handed Michael over to social services. The investigators found this young girl's death to be quite suspicious and so they headed to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the young woman had spent the last month of her life. The investigation led them to Passion, a low-rent strip club where Tanya had worked as a dancer before she died. At the club, everyone directed the police to Karen Parsley, another dancer who was good friends with Tanya. The employees at Passion were probably right since Karen had a lot to reveal to the investigators. Once they had informed her of the reason of their visit, the dancer immediately went into an endless tirade. Finally, I've been waiting for someone to come to me one day and ask me about my friend, Tanya. She was a very intelligent girl. She wasn't anything like any of the other girls here. During her breaks, when she was between clients, she always had a book in her hand. Tanya was very beautiful, but she was very cultivated too. Really, at first, I didn't understand how this girl in her 20s could have landed in this hellhole. But soon I understood that it was her husband who forced her to work. He was an old man named Clarence Hughes. The police learned that this was one of the many assumed names that Franklin used when he was on the run. Karen continued. He was the one who picked up her paychecks and he also came to the club many times to make a scene when Tanya didn't earn enough money. After a while, she and I became friends and she told me that Clarence was very dominating and aggressive. He threatened to kill her and the baby if she tried to leave him, especially with the contacts in the Fraternal Order of the Police, which is a volunteer organization made up of police and civilians working together to improve working conditions for law enforcement officers. Franklin had to join one of this organization under one of his false identities. Tanya said that he would be able to find her no matter where in the country she hid. But for me, I knew all about toxic relationships, which is why I told her to bite the bullet and leave him anyway, especially since there seemed to be a young man who loved her and was ready to protect both her and Michael. He regularly came to see her at the club. Tanya told me that she had been secretly seeing this young man ever since high school and that his name was Kevin Brown. I even think that he might be Michael's father since the little guy looks so much like him. Anyway, you know, a few days before she died, Tanya had decided to leave Clarence for good. She was going to marry Kevin and go back to school. Seriously, I never thought her death was accidental. I'll bet you that asshole Clarence had something to do with it. He never even told us that she had been in an accident and that she was dead. He didn't even want to give her a final farewell by organizing a funeral. It was me and some of the other girls from the club who chipped in to pay for her funeral. He just showed up for a few minutes during the ceremony to sully her memory one last time. He was screaming the whole time. You think Tanya was sweet? But you didn't know her. She was just a slut with dirty secrets. And he left a photo on her tombstone of him.
when he was young, was a little blonde girl of about five or six who was the spitting image of Tanya. I think I still may have the photo. I took it after Clarence left. I'll try my best to find it and send it to you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It had been exactly one week since the day Michael had been kidnapped and since Karen's chilling testimony, which left investigators somewhat puzzled. They finally received the infamous photo that she had told them about. They should be noted that the dancer was right. The little girl in the photo bore a striking resemblance to Tanya Hughes, Franklin's late wife and Michael's mother. After being appraised several times, it turned out that the girl in the photo was undoubtedly Tanya when she was a child. Slowly, the horrible realization that Michael wasn't probably the first child that Franklin had kidnapped started to sink in with the FBI agents. They suspected that Franklin had also kidnapped Tanya, who he raised and then made his wife. Now, it was his son's turn to suffer God only knows what kind of torments at the hands of this deranged man. In the weeks that followed, the FBI agents tried to reconstruct the photo with the help of several witness statements which allowed for them to follow Franklin's whereabouts assuming different identities everywhere all over the country since 1973. One thing led to another, and they managed to locate the first administrative record of Tanya Hughes, which was her enrollment at an elementary school in Oklahoma City in 1975, under the pseudonym Suzanne Davis, daughter of Trenton B. Davis. Then in 1985, the investigation brought them to Atlanta, Georgia, where Tanya was registered at Forest Park High School under the name Sharon Marshall the daughter of Warren Marshall, another Franklin's assumed names. While questioning her former classmates and teachers at the high school, everyone described her as a very popular, very pretty, and extremely bright young girl. As for her family life, according to the testimonies collected, she had always said that her mother was dead and that her father was extremely severe and strict without going into further details. In 1986, she received her high school diploma with honors and won a full scholarship to the Georgia University of Technology to study aerospace engineering. However, as she said to one of her friends at the time, her father would not allow her to pursue any advanced studies. This time, the investigation brought the FBI to Tampa, Florida, two years later. Still under the name Sharon Marshall, the beautiful and brilliant young girl who dreamt of pursuing higher education was now working as an exotic dancer, and little Michael would soon arrive on April 21, 1988. Until then, she had introduced Franklin who was using the name Warren Marshall as her father. However, her co-workers found it strange that a father would come every day to watch his daughter's striptease act. But as depraved as he was, he never missed a chance to find another victim 
older he lured in an unhealthy way at the girl who was supposed to be his daughter. He also met another dancer at the club, Cheryl Ann Camesio, a young girl of 19 who had dreams of making it big in Hollywood, who believed that he had contacts who could help her achieve her goal. In April 1989, he convinced her to pose nude for him in a boat with Sharon in suggestive poses by telling her that he had contacts at the Playboy magazine. But the photo shoot quickly turned into a nightmare. Franklin tried to rape Cheryl, who managed to escape by jumping overboard and swimming to shore, and she hitchhiked home. To get back at Franklin, she reported Sharon for not fully declaring her income, which caused him to lose his government medical aid benefits. However, Franklin retaliated by beating up Cheryl outside the club until a bouncer intervened. A week after the incident, Cheryl disappeared mysteriously, leaving behind three tender-aged children. A few days later, in early May 1989, although Tanya and Franklin were suspects in Cheryl's disappearance, no serious search was ever conducted. It was just another prostitute and an exotic dancer who disappeared. In other words, she was a second-class citizen whose fate the authorities did not care about. Franklin told a neighbor that he was going on vacation with his daughter and grandson and he asked him to mow the lawn and pick up his mails. On June 15, 1989, Suzanne Davis, who became Sharon Marshall for a short time, was now Tanya Tadlock and she married Franklin, who was then using the name Clarence Hughes in the other side of the country in New Orleans. It was no longer a father, his daughter and grandson who were on the run, but rather Mr. and Mrs. Hughes and their son Michael. The next day, Franklin called his neighbor in Florida and asked him to burn his trailer as well as his mail. A few weeks later, the young newlyweds moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, the last stop on Tanya's short and miserable life. Through cross-checking all the information that the FBI agents were able to gather by retracing his steps all over the country, between the different addresses where he lived, the many cars that he owned, as well as the numerous identities he used during his 17 years on the run, the FBI in Tallahassee, Florida, called Special Agent Joseph Fitzpatrick to inform him that Franklin had applied for a driver's license under the name of Warren Marshall. The license was to be sent to an address in Louisville, Kentucky. On November 10, 1994, which was almost two months after Michael's kidnapping, SWAT intervention teams were stationed outside the address in order to apprehend him. But fearing for little Michael's safety, one of the agents disguised him as a FedEx courier and knocked on Franklin's door and claimed that he was there to deliver his driver's license. Once inside, the SWAT agents wasted no time in subduing and arresting him. Although Franklin was then really behind bars, it was a hollow victory for the FBI since they were unable to trace the little boy. Despite trying to question him several times, Franklin vehemently denied having kidnapped the boy. Although there is substantial evidence to implicate him, especially since he was formally identified as James Davis, the elementary school principal. The FBI agents then decided to focus on his co-workers at the used car lot, where he had worked as a salesman for a few weeks, as well as his neighbors in Louisville. They reported that he had never mentioned any son. Instead, they said that he spoke endlessly about a girl who worked as a prostitute, someone named Terry Evans. A neighbor who had become friends with Franklin told the police that, since he didn't have a TV, Franklin would always come over to his house to watch episodes of the show called The Fugitive. After being interrogated several times, Franklin changed the story. When he was presented with evidence about the abduction of the little boy, this time he admitted that he had in fact taken Michael, but only to protect him to keep him far away from his adoptive parents, the Beans, who were an evil and abusive couple. 
and when he was questioned about Tanya and then he showed a photo of him with her as a child, he explained that since he was a good man, he had taken pity on the little girl. He was only keeping her from the clutches of her unworthy, addicted prostitute of a mother whom he had been seeing in 1974. Of course, none of these allegations proved to be true. The police found no evidence that proved that Michael had been placed in anyone's custody anywhere in the country. They found no evidence of mistreatment on the part of the Beans either and at that point, they had no information on Tanya's parents and got no cooperation from Franklin who refused to provide the police with their names. In yet another desperate attempt, the investigators called on Rebecca Barr, one of Franklin's old friends, who grew up with him in the orphanage. They thought that she could get him to reveal the information on what he did with the little boy. Initially, she had agreed to cooperate with the FBI but was unable to get Franklin to talk. Quite the contrary, she fell under his spell and married him in prison. The investigation into Michael's abduction had reached a dead end several months prior and the statements made by hundreds of witnesses interviewed by the FBI did not bode well for the little boy's fate. Some stated that they heard Franklin admit to the boy's unfortunate death. According to what they had heard, Franklin had told his sister and others that he had drowned him in a bathtub in a motel in Georgia and then buried him in the forest shortly after his abduction. Others stated that they had seen Franklin burying Michael's body in a cemetery, while other sources reported that Franklin claimed Michael was doing well and was living safely outside the U.S., although he refused to reveal exactly where or who was taking care of him. Then in March 1985, there was finally a new lead in the case. A mechanic from Kansas had found a large envelope hidden behind the fuel tank of a truck which he recently purchased at an auction. He found 97 photos in the envelope, including many of Tanya in sexually suggestive and pornographic poses from the age 4 until she was an adult. He also found several other images of little naked girls who would never be identified. But there was also more than a dozen photos of a woman tied up with many bruises all over her body and some were colored blood red. Such was the height of creepiness and perversion. Police traced the vehicle back to Franklin. The van belonged to James Davis, the school principal, and it had been stolen by Franklin during the boy's abduction in September 1994. Investigators compared these photos with those of the young girls that Franklin had known during his years on the run. The results of the comparison came back quickly and held a shocking revelation. The women whose final moments of torture were captured on film was none other than Cheryl Ann Camacio, the stripper who had worked with Tanya, who had disappeared in Florida. Now that the identity of the young woman in the photos had been firmly established, the description of the clothes she was wearing was entered into the federal database. Things picked up speed concerning the investigation of Cheryl's disappearance. In fact, the database returned a match. The description of those matched found on a skeleton accidentally found in late 1994 by a landscape architect. The remains were in a swampy area at the edge of the Interstate Highway 275 in Pinellas County, Florida, not far from the home of Franklin's wife at the time. Until then, the bones had been filed under the name Jane Doe, which is a name that the American authorities gave to the female cadavers whose identity is either unknown or unconfirmed. According to the forensic report, this Jane DeVell died following a beating and two gunshots to the head. With this new connection, the evidence collected in addition to the remains of this young girl was compared to the photos found in the van. Besides the clothing, which were similar in every way to Cheryl, many of the photos contained images of furniture and other items identified as belonging to Franklin. A second forensic examination made it possible to determine that the injuries found in Cheryl's photos were consistent with those discovered on the remains of the body found in Florida. 
The investigators therefore concluded that Franklin had abducted Cheryl, beat her, and tortured her before shooting her twice in the head and then getting rid of the body along the I-275. They had enough evidence in this case to charge him and send him to prison for the rest of his life, even if he had never confessed. It was now September 2002, and Franklin was incarcerated in a maximum security federal prison in Oklahoma. He was serving the 57-year sentence that he had been convicted for kidnapping Michael. Unfortunately, this sentence did not change the fact that the boy was still missing. But in September 2002, another trial for Franklin was about to begin in the Pinellas County Courthouse in Florida, a state which still reinforced the death penalty. This trial was for the alleged premeditated murder of Cheryl Ann Comesio. On September 28, 2002, after a trial that lasted nine days, the 12 jurors deliberated for about four hours before unanimously declaring Franklin, now 59 years old, guilty of the first-degree murder of Cheryl in 1989. When the verdict was announced, Franklin addressed the jurors frantically. Look me in the eye. You'll never have a night's sleep. You've condemned an innocent man. It's the FBI scumbags who trapped me with their fake photos. A few days later, Franklin was back at the courthouse. This time, he was sentenced by Judge Nancy Lee. As she read the sentence, Franklin smiled ironically and shook his head. By virtue of the power vested in me by the state of Florida and in accordance with the jurors' recommendations, the accused Franklin Delano Floyd is sentenced to death by lethal injection for the charge of murder in the first degree of Cheryl Ann Comess. While awaiting the date of his execution, he will be incarcerated on death row in the Florida prison system. Mr. Floyd, may God have mercy on your soul. I don't need pity from you or your God. You can all go to hell, Franklin retorted loudly before the police dragged him out of the courtroom. On September 1, 2003, Franklin appealed his conviction with the Superior Court of Florida, but two years later, his sentence was upheld. The years passed until 2013. Franklin was now 70 and still awaiting his execution on death row when the FBI and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children reopened several cold cases, including the investigation into Michael's kidnapping. A year later, Special Agents Lobb and Fur, in charge of the new investigation, spent several days interviewing Franklin in prison about Tanya and Michael Hughes. After about 100 hours of conversation, they eventually were able to gather some useful information from the uncooperative death row prisoner. He told them that in 1974, under the name of Brandon C. Williams, he married a woman in North Carolina. Through court records and by using the name that he had given them, they were able to locate someone named Sandy Chipman. This name allowed them in turn to retrace the woman's steps and find her. Sandy Chipman was a mother of four children from two different fathers, Suzanne, born in 1969, and Allison, born in 1971, from her first husband, Cliff Savakis, as well as Amy, born in 1972, and Philip, nicknamed Stevie, born in 1974, from her second husband, Dennis Brandenburg. Franklin and Sandy dated for about a month before getting married. A few months after they were wed, Franklin convinced her to move the whole family with him to Dallas, Texas. In 1975, Sandy was sentenced to 30 years in prison for having issued NFS checks. While she was serving her sentence, she left her children in the care of her husband. After she was released, she returned home to find the house empty. Her husband and her children were gone. Sandy tried to file a complaint about the kidnapping, but the local authorities told her that as a stepfather, Franklin had the right to take the children. After searching for two months, she finally managed to find her two daughters, Ellison and Amy, at the children's center run by the local church. But she never found her eldest, Suzanne, or the youngest, Philip. 
At the end of the investigation, by using DNA samples taken from Sandy Chipman, agents Lobb and Fur discovered the true identity of Tanya Hughes. It was Sandy's eldest daughter, Suzanne Marie Sevakis. Then later in 2019, a man named Philip Steve Patterson came forward believing that he was Suzanne's little brother and Sandy's son who was still considered missing. DNA tests confirmed his identity in 2020. He had been placed under the care of social services and later privately adopted in North Carolina. When confronted with this information from the two agents, Franklin looked Special Agent Lobb right in the eye and without showing any ounce of regret, finally described what had happened to Michael Hughes. The day that I kidnapped Michael from school, I was very angry and I blamed Tanya for cheating on me with someone else. But mostly I resented this boy because he was the proof that she had strayed as part of the adoption process by the Beans. DNA tests confirmed that Franklin was not Michael's biological father. So I drove and headed from Oklahoma City to Dallas and Michael got out of control. He cried and he screamed. That was when I felt pressure building up and I was running out of patience. At the last highway exit leaving Oklahoma, I forced him out of the car. I shot him twice in the head to shut him up and buried him right there. After more than 20 years, it was unlikely that there were any remains of Michael's body. But FBI agents went over the area with the help from a team of anthropologists from the University of Oklahoma only to find the two socks or the metal eyelets from Michael's sneakers. However, they found nothing. But at least reopening the cold case that had been dormant for two decades revealed the true identity of Tanya Hughes, whose suspicious death will probably remain a mystery. But more importantly, it brought an end to the search of Michael. Despite the lack of a body, his adoptive parents stated that Franklin's confession would finally allow them to begin grieving for their little boy, who had been taken much too soon. Franklin Delano Floyd, this cruel criminal devoid of any humanity who has destroyed so many lives, is now 78 years old and is suffering from serious health problems. Without a set date for his execution, it is highly likely that he will die from natural causes while still on death row. We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take 5 seconds to leave us a 5-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.